Okay, welcome everybody to episode 36 of the Academy of Management Origin Series. And in this paper, I'm going to be talking with Erin Bass and Mike Farr um, about their paper, Better to be Loved by Some Firm Flaunting as an Impression Management Strategy. And I just want to uh, uh, recognize that they wrote this paper as uh, members of a four author team, so four authors on the paper. So the other two authors are uh, Ivana Milicevic and uh, Varki Titus, or Anand Titus as I uh, know him. And uh, uh, they're not going to be joining us here today, but we will reference their contributions to the paper and what they've brought to um, just uh, uh, this, this fascinating insight into firm impression management. Um, but before we get into that, if we can just, uh, if I can just ask each of you to briefly introduce yourselves. So, Erin, if we can start with you, and then we'll go to Mike, and then we'll get into some of the the meat of the paper and what went into writing it. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having us today. So, I'm Erin Bass, and I'm an associate professor of management at the University of Nebraska Omaha. Great. Thanks, Erin. Thank you, Greg. I'm Mike Farr, um, I'm the Associate Dean for Research and Executive Programs at the University of Georgia. I'm also a Professor of Management, that's my home department, been here for 14 years, so enjoying spending time talking with both of you. And the, the one comment I do just want to make about Mike for the rest of our listeners is a few weeks back, I did a little bit of analysis of the most prolific AMR authors over the last 10 years. And it was a pretty crude analysis, but my quick and crude analysis put Mike at the top of that list. So uh, not, we're not only going to learn about, um, about this paper, but also hopefully get a little bit of insight into um, what drives some of that uh, prolific ability to publish time and time again. It's probably just great co-author teams, but um, there might be a little bit more to it than that. Hey, Mike? <laughs> That's good. That's very fun. Yeah. So, um, so, so, so the paper here, I call it the firm flaunting paper, and we can get into that. Um, but uh, uh, the, the the paper we're discussing here today is better to be loved by some question mark firm flaunting as an impression management strategy. Um, so, do you want to kick off just by giving us the sort of one minute elevator pitch of what is this manuscript about? What's the essence of the message of the manuscript? Sure. Yeah, I can take a stab at it and then Mike, feel free to fill in the gaps. So really, we started with this idea that we know that firms have this range of proactive impression management behaviors, and they use that really to like manage impressions, but put themselves in a good light so that if a negative event occurs, you know, they've kind of got some chips in the bucket. So we are adding to that range by introducing flaunting. And we define flaunting in the beginning of the paper as ostentatious behaviors that display the firm's affluence and its robust resource race. So we really are taking this idea that people flaunt and firms can flaunt too. Um, once we've established that uh, definition, then we go on to describe a two-part model that really gets at the crux of like how and why flaunting can then reduce the impact of an unpredictable negative event on firm outcomes. Um, and really what we get at is that flaunting enhances distinctiveness among stakeholder groups, those who like it and those who don't. And I'm sure we're gonna talk about that um, over today's session. 
But really, there's also this group of people, or we put two groups of uh, stakeholders who are more or less on the fence. And so if the flaunting firm can then elicit net positive evaluations, meaning keep some of those on the fence or maybe over on the more positive side, it's then able to buffer the impact of an unpredictable negative event. So that's really where we get the title from is courting the love of some might be worth the cost of being disliked or even worse by others. Awesome. So give give us a little sense, if you will, of just what do you mean by flaunting? Maybe what are some pragmatic examples? Uh, uh, what is this, this notion of a firm going out and flaunting? Yeah, that's a great question. And Mike, I know you have a couple examples too, but it's really getting at like, does it have this very opulent headquarters, for example, or does it have these junkets that its employees or board members go on that, you know, there's, they're throwing big parties, like all of these things that you're kind of sitting back going, what is the utility in that? Um, why would a firm spend the money on that if it doesn't really have to? That's great. Our conversation started with this both Erin and I experienced this in different ways. So Erin can tell her story about working in an industry where she saw flaunting firsthand. And, you know, more generally, you know, we're an applied field, right? And so one thing that I like to always say to co-authors, you know, Greg, I've had the pleasure of working with you too, is that, you know, it's okay for things to be phenomenologically driven. Like we observe something or read about something in the Wall Street Journal and we say, well, why is that? And so more generally with the flaunting paper, hey, we acknowledge there's plenty of impression management tactics out there. We're saying, here's another one that we've observed and lived and may be a little different because, and we'll get into this more, you're delib- you know, you know as a firm that you're going to make some people unhappy with this behavior, but you think net-net is going to be a positive. And one thing I've experienced a lot um, in my research and then also, I mean, I'm fortunate, to teach a, I'm fortunate to teach a lot of executives in Atlanta. So we have our executive MBA programs there. We also have an exec ed arm. And this, this 21st century phenomenon, and almost recently in the past decade, about firms taking stances on things. It's a little bit different from flaunting, but the outcomes are different. That if you're Nike and take a stance on the BLM movement or something like that, you know someone's not going to like that. Right. And so, but you also know that some people will, and there's a calculus involved in that it's a net positive. And then back to personal experience. So I had for years, I had a senior executive from a major cigarette manufacturer. There aren't that many left. So kind of figure out who that is. Speak to my exec MBAs about, you know, different strategies that they would have. And, you know, one of them was is drawing in customers through display, ostentatious displays, as Aaron mentioned, bringing them out to the Big Sky Ranch, right? Offering that, making them feel as, as part of an exclusive club through the various gifts and lavish things that they throw them, whether it's a party or an all-inclusive trip with significant other things like that. And maybe Aaron might want to share some of her experiences at work as well. Well, Aaron, now that Mike's twice alluded to your story or, or, or industry ex- exposure or experience, can you can you maybe just fill us in? And I, it's probably got some 
um, relevance to the germination of this as a research project. Yeah, absolutely. I hope this story lives up to its, you know, uh, <laughs> lives up to the hype. But I used to work in energy before I came into um, academia and I worked in oil and gas. And so this is back when, you know, oil prices were really high and, you know, everything was great with the industry. And um, we had these amazing trips and amazing parties. And I mean, just imagine like all of the, anything that you could think would be like totally extreme. We were doing those things just because, right. And part of it was to show that we were a very successful company, but there were some other things that were happening too, that we kind of actually then used that as the theoretical kind of basis for explaining why a firm would do this beyond just, you know, burning money. And there, and so that's really what we try to get into the paper is why do firms do this and how could that be effective? So I lived it. It was a lived experience. And so you do, um, from a pure writing the paper standpoint now, in the first paragraph, you mention GoDaddy and ZZ Top. Um, You mention um, uh, uh, Yeezy. You mention Tesla. Um, And so you, you really do anchor quite strongly in writing the paper on these examples. Um, What was the sort of logic of coming out so strongly with these very vivid examples up front? Did it evolve to that point? Or how did you discuss and debate it as a set of, uh, as an author team to to start in that way, which some would say is sort of uh, very phenomenological and almost a-theoretical from a sense, and yet we're in the theory journal of uh, management. Yeah, that's a great question. And Mike, I want to let you handle that because you were the one who really talked about we can't theorize based on example. So I think that would be great for people to hear you talking about that. Um, but I do want to mention one of the co-authors of Anna Milosevic. She is incredible at finding examples. So anytime through the review process, you know, someone was saying, like, does this really exist? she would be on it and be able to find that. So kind of speaking to playing to everyone had a role and that was one of the roles that she had that was really helpful. But Mike, I'll let you talk about theorizing from example. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point to bring in Eve on that because she was exceptional at that. And also to give her more credit because a lot of things that we talked about are derived from organizational behavior theories. You know, I debt of gratitude to OB for my almost entire theoretical career. But Eva is, is steeped in those literatures, and she was really helpful there. To answer the question, it's, it's really a great one. Um, so in general, when writing theory, and Greg, I, I hope you agree with this, I think examples are really important because one thing, again, I'm talking generally is, I like to say you're not saved by some fancy tables or interactions or anything on page 15, right? And so you have 30 to 35 pages that it's um, it's a master class in holding someone's attention. I mean that sincerely, uh, you know, not not glibly, and also having a lot telling a logical story. And so examples really help in conceptualizing the potentially abstract arguments. Now, again, we're supposed to be an applied field, and so when Aaron and I and team are making, uh, you know mostly general arguments, we want to say, hey, and here's how it happens in the real world. The downside to that is always in the review process, especially in AMR, is that you can be accused of cherry picking examples, right? And so 
this will always be a challenge to the folks out here. My my experience is that it, some examples are better than none, but then make sure that your examples reiterate what you're talking about. Really, what the examples here are is that they're not they're not you know statistically significant support, of course, but they contextualize your argument so that people can say, "Oh, now I get it." Oh, Mike interacted with a cigarette company or Aaron worked in oil and gas. Now, before I stop to answer your question about starting, that's also an interesting thing. So I typically do not stop start with a phenomenological, you know, wow and got you because of the potential that says that I like to I just say, hey, what's the conversation that we're joining, right? What's the common ground? Maybe that makes me boring. The flip side to that is, and you know, we have other excellent scholars in the field that say, hey, you're supposed to be good storytellers, right? Start with something that grabs people's attention. And so over time, and we only worked on the introduction, you know, we only wrote 100 versions of the introduction, right? It, 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 it coalesced through the author group, and it was a great group to work with that we thought that this was the most effective way to start it. And then, of course, we also rely on reviewers and the editor to tell us, is this a good idea or not? And it seemed to resonate with them. So that's how we ended up there. Awesome. Well, thank you. And 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 so one of the important points to take out of that um, is that examples can be valuable and they generally are valuable, but you cannot theorize from examples. The theory needs to stand on its own and almost be able to exist independence of the examples the examples just help bring um bring it to life how people remember it a little bit more saliently or me immediately connect with the theory but if i remove that example from the paper uh, the paper should still be able to flow and exist um and i think that that's exactly true i started doing your five c's sort of strategy and if i start on paragraph two i can kick into it so um but so so I think that's a, a, a really useful um, a, a sort of issue to highlight around these examples. Yeah, I think that you know a great rule of thumb of that is even if you take that first paragraph out, and I remember Aaron and I talked about this a lot, and Greg, you have great experience here too, is that when when you lead up to proposition one or argument one, that should be theoretically motivated. You should have theory to answer the how and why question. It's often good to end that section with a for, simply a for example that contextualizes the theoretical argument, but it should not be a substitute for the theoretical argument. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Can you take us back to when this project got started? So, um, uh, you know, what's what's the genesis of um, thinking about uh, uh, firms as as flaunting uh, and it's clear that you've each had exposure in your own right to it, but actually now starting to say we we could or should write a paper on this. How did that come about? Yeah, so this was obviously an idea that I had right when I started the PhD of, you know, what what's something that I know that I've seen that is yet to be explained. And so flaunting really stuck with me for a while. And it was one of those things where you kind of shop the idea around. So like if we were at a conference or whatever, you're saying like, Hey, what do you think? Like, is there anything that's in the literature that kind of speaks to this? And the answer kept on saying, no, like, no, no, no. 
So as our team started to assemble, it was really this idea that like no one's spoken about this yet. We've kind of have some anecdotal evidence and it seems to be really relevant in practice, something that Mike talked about, like this phenomenon exists. And so that was kind of the genesis of how we decided to write a theory paper on this topic and specifically within the audience of impression management. Awesome. Um, It's interesting that one of the things that I've heard about with the sort of genesis of ideas is very often there's sort of a slow hunch Someone's seen something. They've 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 held on to it for a while. They've chatted to other people about it, and I think in particular with AMR papers, you know, we're not writing papers about very quick sort of things that come and go. It's about more fundamental things. So if there's something that sort of you, as, as someone out there, feels like needs to be explained, seems to be somewhat persistent, one of the things I often suggest or, or, or tell people to do is put it away for a while and see if you can forget about it. If you can't forget about it, it's often worth writing a paper on it. If you easily forget about it or it never comes up in conversation or in other things, then maybe it, it's, it doesn't warrant a paper. So it sounded like you were in that sort of slow hunch mode for a while before you started to truly act on it in the form of writing a paper. Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting. I just want to make a comment on that is I went back to look at some of the previous drafts of this, like initial submission and how it developed through the review process. And to your point, the idea actually remained pretty consistent throughout all of the drafts. Right. And so we couldn't forget it. And it was still like a very clear idea. And it just helped get developed through the review process and the input that we had in the review process to consider other things. But you're right, like that nugget remained even from like when we initially had the idea to write a paper on it. Yeah, that's awesome. So who's the target audience here? One of the things I notice is sort of this bridge there's some OB stuff going on, impression management, da, da, da. and but we're talking about things at a at a firm level. Um, who do you see as the sort of target audience, and and how do you make sure you're speaking to them? Yeah, so I think you know I think our goal was that we would have macro impression management folks be the target audience for this paper because it adds to that quiver or portfolio of, uh, you know, like some of Scott Graffin's work on anticipatory impression management and colleagues, of course, many of whom I've been fortunate enough to work with myself. And then the reactive impression management, you know, Annie Zavialova, John Bundy. And so even though we draw from, you know, social psych and even individual level theories, which, you know, I said, admittedly done oftentimes in my career, we, we often ask that question, like, who do we want to read this paper? And we we expect, you know, in general, it would be these macro behavioralists that deal with managing of perceptions. You could call it the social evaluations crowd. You know, Patrick Hawk could be in that group, too. You know, one of your colleagues and mine. Um, but, you know, generally the impression management crowd, but more among the macro or strategy scholars. Does that seem fair, Aaron? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think so. And honestly, we spent a lot of time talking about that, too. So that was very intentional as part of developing the paper is who is this paper intended for? Right. And how do we make sure that we are 
in that conversation where all of those people that Mike mentioned and beyond, like being in that conversation with them. So I want to I want to I want to explore this a little further because I think there's a technique or an approach that you've used that's really valuable and interesting, which is sort of reflected in table one, where you take all the prior work that's been done in that space, each of the sort of major themes. So we've got voluntary disclosure, anticipatory aim, anticipatory impression management, ceremonial actions, and you line them up, you lay out their purpose. And then on the bottom of the table is flaunting. And so you, you, you're able to articulate very clearly what's been done before and why there's the space that hasn't been accounted for that this flaunting perspective can, can fill. Can you talk to us a little bit just about the, uh, the, the, the conscious decision to sort of structure things in this way, to have a table, to write it up in the, uh, in the sort of theoretical background of the paper to achieve what very clearly lays out a space for a, a, a new theoretical perspective in this sort of uh, uh, macro impression management space. So I think that's critical. And you know, we'll talk more generally about you know, what it means to make a contribution. But, you know, if, if you're looking at reviewers or, or editors like yourself, I mean, the the meta goal of, of any paper in management is to, you know, or any is to say, you know, how are we moving the field forward, right? So, and that's a fundamentally what do we know? So we can use, you know, we can use word fancy words like problematize the literature, right? And so where does the current literature stop, right? And then how does this add to it? And then, you know, point one A to that is just the classic, just because there are, there's a gap doesn't mean it needs filling. And, and so we, Aaron and I and the whole team had multiple, multiple conversations to say, and then, okay, I'm sorry. And then you also need to signal to the readership that you know what you're talking about, right? So this is the field as we know it, you know, within reason, right? So it has all these different dimensions. And, you know, you know, admittedly, you know, we're not splitting the atom here, but we're adding something to the portfolio that by adding it makes the literature or more importantly, makes its predictive power, hopefully more complete. And so that was very important to us because we know, you know, a major thing that reviewers and readers will look for is that are you signaling what you know? And then are you saying that what you're doing advances the, advances the literature in a meaningful way? And that became the manifestation of that became the table and became for us to say, all right, hypothetically, the, the, the field doesn't fit this one space, right? If that space is missing, we're going to fill that space and go from there. So I think that's incredibly useful for sort of conceptualizing. How do we think about writing uh, theory Theory, theory papers that are going to fit into a 35-page manuscript uh, and, and make a contribution. Where, do, where can we go so far with the existing theory and where's there space that it would make a lot of sense to add something on, to reconfigure something to... Um, but then I, I think the other piece of that is the practice of 
distilling it down to a table, I think probably adds discipline to your writing to know that you're you're covering all dimensions of that table and makes it easy for the reader to understand what do we know from before and what are we adding on. So I, th- I think I, I found that valuable as a reader of this paper. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about um, the stakeholder piece? Because you've got at the outcome of this paper, the notion that it's going to impact certain stakeholders and stakeholders, it's sort of quite a broad umbrella term. And um, it often encompasses a lot of different groups with a lot of different perspectives. How did you think about stakeholders here and how specific you would get or how general you would get in trying to understand which stakeholders would care or not care as much about flaunting. Because I think dealing with stakeholders can sometimes be challenging for theorists. And so I'd love to know what your sort of approaches were or some of the the, the mechanisms or or thinking uh, sort of uh, tricks that you use to to help navigate the stakeholder space? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, Mike can share the tricks. You said tricks that we use. So Mike can share the tricks. I just knew that as an impression management paper, like that's what what firms are doing when they flaunt. They're managing the impressions of someone. So like we knew that we had to have stakeholders or some something in there um, to explain what was being managed. The other side of it that we always thought was really kind of cool was that some people like it and some people don't. And we wanted to make sure that that was reflected in the paper. So in some ways, we had no choice but to talk about stakeholders and specifically stakeholder groups is what we settle on. And so that's the language that we use throughout the paper. But just identifying that, like in Mike's example of the um you know, the going out to the big sky ranch, right? Like some people are going to read about that and be like, oh, I would love to do like, that sounds so cool. And look at these pictures and how do I get to be a part of that? And then others are going to be like, I cannot believe this. This makes me so mad. And, you know, so capturing that by comparing and contrasting these stakeholder groups was something that was really critical for us to be able to develop theory about related to flaunting. Yeah, I, I echo that. And I, I, I think getting into the process is really important because we knew we knew who the flaunt, we knew who the the, the target audience was. It's, and so our figure two in the paper shows this two by two with the extreme support coalition, the fanboys, the lovers, whatever you want to call it. And you know, we observe this phenomenon all the time and again a 21st century phenomenon, you know, exacerbated by social media. And so we're saying, okay, who are these people? What, you know, what's their makeup? And then again, here's where Eva's OB experience really helped us is that then we had to get into the mechanisms to develop the two by two. And so we're thinking, if these people are interdependent, right, with the firm or highly interdependent, they rely on the firm, or at least cognitively do, and they share the same worldview these are the high, high people. These are the people that we got to have. And then naturally, we're like, all right, what are the other four dimensions? And so that creates the other three groups, right? The opposition is natural. They're the low, low. And so they're the people. So they're not the fanboys. They're the haters. 
and they just don't buy into any. So, and they're also not dependent on you in any way. So they're, you know, they're the antagonists, right? And so what I think is two things that are cool about the paper is that one, this, this impression management behavior and kind of, you know, part of how we make the contributions that you know that you are dividing and conquering here if you're engaging in these behaviors, right? This, you are, we had the word wedge in the paper for many iterations and <laughs> they're driving a wedge and the reviewers rightly told us to, you know, kind of- Bind you down. <laughs> you, just, you know, you can see how excited I am, right? But you know you're driving a wedge, you know you're dividing and conquering, but the subtle cool thing, at least for Aaron and me and our co-authors, is that the action is actually on the off diagonal, right? And so you know you're going to get these polar opposites that all else equal cancel each other out. So then if this is going to be effective, you know, i.e. net positive, then you got to keep those others to those enthusiasts, right? And those those dissenters who are from neutral to subtly positive in your camp. And the back half of the paper really gets, actually focuses more on getting them to stay, two things, stay on your side, but also not cross over into the fanboys because that would make them less exclusive and disrupt the whole reason why you flaunt. So hopefully it's a little more intricate than, than, than uh, one's led to believe, but that's what for us was really exciting. Now, Mike, the one thing I would love to ask about is the notion of developing a typology of sorts. So here you've got two dimensions, so you'll end up with a two by two. Um, and what are the, the tricks or the approaches to doing that well, such that it can actually make or be part of making a theoretical contribution Versus you as a, as a prior associate editor at AMR know that we get tons of papers with two by two typologies that just don't make a contribution. And so what, what distinguishes using, developing a typology that becomes part of a contribution from one that really is quite passe or doesn't say that much? Aaron's, Aaron's going to laugh when I say this, but I said that a thousand, says a thousand times that my opinion only. Don't let people tell you that a typology isn't a theoretical contribution, because I believe it is. If your Corneliuson thinks it is, then that's good enough for me, right? And so he's, you know, he's a friend and a colleague and a former associate editor and a great theorist. But what we often see is that people stop there, right? And so here's where, yeah. And so there's that that is the be all and end all of the paper. And yeah, it's a theoretical contribution, but I think what at least most readers of AMR it makes them feel unsatisfied. And so I look at it as a means to an end. And so that first meta contribution, I shouldn't say meta, major contribution is a typology. Here comes Aaron. Then we, then we want to see you apply it to something, right? That's part two of the paper. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. But if, if, if you're going to give them that, then put it to use, right? Put it in action in some way. And and I find that to be more uh, um, satisfying to readers and it fulfills their expectation of what it means to make an AMR style contribution for one that's, you know, fits up 35 pages, right? 
So useful, the typology is used in explaining something else. Yeah. And so it is a contribution. You could stop there. And I'm just being practical, right? I think that's risky because then, yeah, you want to engage it in explaining something else. Yeah. The other piece that I think is incredibly relevant, which you you didn't mention, but make sure that the dimensions of that typology are theoretically relevant or theoretically meaningful. And so maybe you can, you or Aaron can just talk a little bit about how did you come up with your two dimensions for your typology? Where did you sort of draw them from? How many iterations did you have to go through? What was sort of the 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 sense making or the 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 theoretical development of those those dimensions? Yeah, I think that this development and Mike, you know, feel free to chime in was very reflective of our entire writing process that so we'd come together and we'd be like, why? Like what <laughs> or how do we explain this? And then we'd go to the literature and try to find relevant literature that would help us try to explain the phenomenon. And again, like this is a phenomenology driven paper. So of course it's going to be, we're going to sit there and ask why, but I think having those conversations were really helpful in not just identifying the schema congruence and interdependence, but like the mechanisms that we talk later, uh, talk about later on in the paper, like the buffering and, you know, really coming together and keeping each other honest about explaining what was actually happening in the paper was helpful as an approach for us. And I think Anand was, I mean, has an incredible skill with that. So he was really pushing us to drive the logic home in every part of the paper. And he was, he also helped us infuse logic so that it really provided a narrative that is then not just a theory paper, but can contribute to the conversation about impression management and identify this new tool that had not been talked about before. Cool. I'll echo that. And, and as I said, we we knew about this, we knew about the fans, right? And then we said theoretically, what are their characteristics? And that's that's high schema congruence and high interdependence. And then we asked the million-dollar question: does that mean there's people that are high, low? and low, low. And so we continue to have those conversations, like you said, theoretically matter. And so I, I think we did a great job figuring out that these that these are not the null set, right, or the empty set, that all these groups exist. And then to reiterate, I think the subtle action on the off diagonal, because the opposition and extreme support coalition may cancel each other out is cool. And then another thing, and we'll laugh at this, you know, table two with our something that looks like a QCA, right? <laughs> but it's actually not. Came <laughs> later in the process, you know, thanks to the review process. But this gets to the theory. As simple as that looks, what that let us do, because from 3,000 feet, you would think this diagonal cancels each other out, but this diagonal cancels each other out. But what we were able to do by, by using these, you know, having both one or neither of these it actually made your evaluation more powerful because we constantly had to justify why we thought overall it was net positive and not zero. And so that table came in a little bit later and I think we did a good job theoretically and the whole group deserves uh, you know, uh, kudos for this to say how we got to net positive. We were pushed on that and that's how table two came about in the text that follows it. 
And so that table two is breaking down each of the the the, the groups as you've you've got in, in in your typology, but then talking about um, their extrinsic benefits, intrinsic benefits, and the general strength of their evaluation. So you get at a more nuanced perspective of each of those audience groupings or stakeholder groups, as opposed to just strong, weak kind of notion. So based on that, if the folks buy it, the extreme support coalition may be highly positive in figure two, but that positivity outweighs the negativity of the opposition because of the anchor and credit again to the entire team uh, for coming, you know, for working through, iterating through those things. Yeah. So you've spoken a little bit about the power of iteration and how things get added to or changed in the paper and this table two being one example. Were there any other sort of quite big items that changed either as a result of reviewer comments or new insights that were generated through that iteration? And just give a sense of, of sort of the the some of the evolution of the paper for the for the the sake of people who might not have submitted to AMR before and 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 don't necessarily understand that that these things change and evolve as they go through a review process. So as shocking as it may seem, figure one, which is our overarching figure, did not exist in the initial submission. So Mike is laughing because it's true. And after we added it, we were like, why did we not have this in the initial submission? But, you know, like we, it hadn't crossed our minds until our reviewer had pointed out the power of displaying what we had already had in the paper in terms of writing in a graphical sense and kind of it foreshadows the entire story of the paper because if you read the paper, you see that figure comes actually quite early in our theorizing, um, which we were strategic about too, right? Like we didn't want to put it at the very end, which there's value in doing that too, but we wanted to set the stage for the entire, like the entire story itself and then walk through each piece of the figure. So that was a really big addition that happened as part of the review process for sure. I just want to double click on that, that notion of, sort of creating a picture for your readers that comes out quite early that allows them to follow the more nuanced, detailed stuff going on in the text. And so although figure one is actually only fully explained towards the end of the paper, it comes out really early, but creates a roadmap for the reader to follow along as things go, which I, I found useful as a first-time reader of this paper. I think figures and tables are strategic and very helpful because, you know, going back to what we said earlier, you're, you're not saved by an interaction graph or a polynomial regression or something like that. And, you know, many of us are anchored to that because that's how we're trained. And so roadmaps are great, you know, something that's visual to be very practical to kind of break up the text. And we did say that because, you know, Greg, you do it too. You know, you should have a figure if it's a conceptual model to show how you know, the constructs link together, and then you use it as a roadmap. And the other thing I, you know, I'll say is that in general, a reader should be able to pick up your paper, look at the figures and tables. And if you have propositions, say, read those propositions, and even the section headings, and they should know what the paper is about. And so these things should all add value. And we, we can chuckle now, but thanks to a reviewer, we put in something that should have probably been in there from the very beginning. Awesome. So what uh, what uh, what impact do you hope that this paper will have? What's the 
sort of impact from a theoretical standpoint? What's the potential for empirical work or maybe even, you know, with executive MBAs and, and other executives thinking about doing different things? Can you can you give us a sense of 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 where do we go next? So I can maybe speak, I'll speak on the empirical side and Mike, I'll let you speak on the, the theory side here. But empirically, you know, we talk a little bit about the different empirical um, ways that this theory could be tested or extended with empirical work. Um, and we're in a great time because, you know, we are in the time of influencers. We're in the time of social media. And so firms really can't hide behind the scenes or like wait for a a newspaper to come out to cover an article like these things are happening all the time. Um, so I think using leveraging social media, we talk about qualitative work and really kind of digging into the stakeholder group movement or distinctiveness, how how they actually respond to a, a firm that flaunts could be really interesting work that, you know, we're hoping that the theory that we've laid out here is laying the groundwork for those empirical investigations to happen. Yeah, I, I concur with that. And I'll say again, you know, we're not, we're, AMR is biased, but it's, it's a great tool for management scholars. I mean, I think we're the best storytellers in business schools. I think this is an amazing outlet that allows us to do this. I highly disagree when people say that these propositions and arguments aren't tested. I've had some of my own papers tested and they're, it's a highly slighted journal. So people are using it in empirical work, right? And so, and, but let's be, let's be candid or practical or humble. This is mid-range theory, right? I mean, you, you want to do one thing well, ostensibly in 35 pages. And Greg, I know you, you've talked about this too. And I would always err on doing less rather than more because, and again, it's a slip, not slippery slope, but finding the inflection point is hard, but we make a humble contribution. We, we acknowledge that the impression management literature may be missing something in its portfolio of actions. And we're seeing it in real time in the social media era when firms are trying to draw attention in a very crowded space. And I draw the analogs to some of my own, you know, Someone said, sum up your research in, in a couple of words. I'm like, it's all about trade-offs, right? <laughs> and so this, this, I think, practically exposes that firms can't please all the people all the time in terms of how they interact with stakeholders or society at large. And in, a, in, a, in an era when they can go directly to stakeholders or even the person on their couch, right, who suddenly becomes... Uh, part of, of of the narrative because they you know because they can tweet about it on social media. The firms strategically know that they may be driving people away, but it's a strategic calculus to say net net this is probably a good move for us. Whether it's Nike or Starbucks or the oil and gas industry flaunting, I see flaunting as part of a bigger story about how firms are drawing attention to themselves knowing that they're not going to please all the people all the time and the ramifications of that. And I, I mean, the thing that struck me is there probably, I, I, there is a group of firms that are almost anti-flaunters. They, 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 you know, Aaron, you're in, you're in Nebraska. The, a lot of the Berkshire Hathaway firms are almost like, 
we're going to have the most down-to-earth head office possible. We're never going to put on anything outside of work hours. and that, but, but they're doing that almost with an impression management perspective that we're creating an alternative perspective of uh, how a firm should be conceived. And, and so I, I almost thought of a of a, a an opportunity there to disentangle. Is it driven by industry? Is it driven by the stakeholder you're trying to appeal to? Um, but but I think there is sort of this this counter movement to what I think is a very strong flaunting movement. But this this opportunity space opens up for firms to counter against that and be be the alternative. Hundred percent. Yeah, we we totally agree. And that was actually a question that we had throughout the whole thing. We wanted to make sure this wasn't just something that happens in one industry, right? And so as we were doing our research and part of the where you see all the examples is we see it happen across industries. So it can't just be an industry thing. There's something else that's driving this behavior too, to your point. Um, and so uncovering that could be like a great next step. I, I love, I call it the John Deere effect, and I think it's certainly correlated with industry, but it's, you know, for tortoise and hare is putting yourself out there, you, you run the risk of more extreme evaluations where if you just stay under the radar, and I also agree in my conversations with, you know, a lot of executives in the industry and also scholars like, like, like you all here is that, um, Will the pend will the pendulum swing back? And, you know, Disney's a good example right now. I mean, and and we talk about Delta a lot in Atlanta. That if you ask a lot of the state that you work in, you also are beholden to some things that the, you know that 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 regulators will say that have to say. And you know, the most recent Disney example in Florida was, hey, they put a stake in the ground and they wanted to support their employees. And they got their hand slapped a little bit. And I won't forget the Wall Street Journal headline after that is that Disney has Disney will now remain silent on this issue, like in the headline. Right. Mm -hmm. and so the power of silence, power of reticence can mean something, too. I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. I, I agree that it, too, is a strategy. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. it's almost conscious. So, so uh, Mike, have you had a chance in your executive MBAs to bring up this notion to ever discuss it in in any of our classes, and do you, and the bigger question is, do you find that there is an opportunity to bring out what you might be writing about in AMR and sort of make reference to it as you're getting down to the practicals of how do you lead, how do you make decisions, how do you manage large corporations? Well, I'm really I'm really fortunate in that way, and you know. For the folks out there, you know, this is kind of a natural evolution of, of your career. So I've been out, you know, I've been at this for 20 years now and it worked, you know, worked in industry for about 10 before I got my PhD. And what I find, and hopefully I hope Aaron agrees, is that, you know, a lot of my research on impression management or, or crisis management is, I think, applicable to the real world. But what I get to do is I get to bounce some of those things off, you know, a senior VP at Home Depot or Delta or Coke. These are Atlanta-based organizations and have them nod or call me out on it, right? And so I have talked a lot about flaunting with those folks in those classes, along with making a claim on social issues about being a celebrity firm and, and managing prices. So it's great feedback for us as scholars, I keep saying, in an applied field to get the feedback that this stuff matters. So I've had, I've had a lot of fun with it, yeah. Awesome. 
Erin, last question for you. What did you learn from uh, from the process of writing an AMR paper from this paper in particular and getting the opportunity to work with Mike, who you know, publishes a, a, an AMR paper every third month, it seems, but it's not quite that, but it could be close to that. But what did you learn that I think you you might pass on to 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 your students or to others that you work with in in the past, and that might be relevant to someone out there who wants to publish in AMR? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, this is my first theory paper I had ever written. Um, so it was everything was new for me, and you know, to your point, Mike is so seasoned and knows things that I just kept my mind open. I think our whole author team did, you know, really keeping our mind open to where the process was going to take us, how it was going to unfold. Because I think, you know, Mike, you're probably the one who could say this. Every paper is probably a little bit different with how it develops and how it unfolds. And so we had an amazing author team. Um, so that really, really helped. We all um, really contributed in different ways, but in concert, if you can imagine that. And so that was, I think, really important to get the right people working, people who you enjoy working with. Um, And then it's really fun because I think one of the things that Mike shared with us is if you're writing a a theory paper, like all you have is your pen, right? And so it's a huge challenge to just, that's all you have. That's your only tool. That's your only weapon. Um, so I think I learned a lot from just working alongside him and the others and, uh, trying to push this through. And then the last thing that I will say is, you know, really that, like, I think Michael say, like, I'm kind of relentless. Like I just don't take no for an answer. And so, uh, even having this idea in the PhD and sticking with it and you just kind of keep taking one step at a time instead of thinking about the whole process was a really helpful approach for me too. Awesome. So one thing I, I really wanted to give you credit for. And so, yeah, philosophically, I like to say, hey, it's you and your pen for 35 pages. Can you construct a logically consistent story that people follow and also see the value in the contribution, right? I'm not trying to wax over poetic here but you know what i mean and then bring in those pictures right people like pictures to anchor your story and examples but back to what aaron said she was relentless and it, it if i can say anything to co-authors and we were amazing at this is that papers go to die even empirical paper, if you do not iterate on them and we consistently met every week or every other week to make progress and if you, if you, you know, if you get out of, I'll say the high school mentality, because I guess that was me in high school about writing everything at the last minute and just do a little bit a day. So, we're, you know, just get that introduction done and then meet. You're going to make slow and steady progress, but please meet consistently because if you don't, you know, you're not anchored by any methods or anything like that. And we, Aaron was relentless and as the first author, an exceptional writer but making sure we all came together on a regular basis. Well, thank you. Thank you to both of you for sharing your background insights on the paper, on working together, on working as part of a bigger team, and on your uh, contributions to AMR in multiple different ways. So, Mike, you've been an associate editor. Um, I'm 
an associate editor right now largely thank you to thanks to your support and and uh, and and just working with me and so thank you for your continued service in here and thanks for being so open honest and just willing to share setting up this meeting i hope everyone's got benefit from it um i certainly have and uh, and every one of these AMR origin series interview seems to add another piece to the puzzle. And this was a big, important piece. So thanks very much. You know, thanks so much for the opportunity. It was great.